Revelation chapter 1. We are back in Revelation 1 this week. We are going to be in verse 4 through 8. Um, I, that little podium right there, I can't spread my notes out enough, so uh, that's why I'm up here. Um, Revelation chapter 1, let's read 4 through 8. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ who is, in the, faithful, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth, shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would bless our time tonight. Lord, I pray that you would uh, give us understanding of your word. I pray, Father, that you would increase our, our hope. And Lord, our, uh, our reverence for you would abound because of your word. Lord, we thank you for Jesus and the work that he done to accomplish our salvation on the cross. And Lord, we thank you for the promise of his return. And Lord, to, to, to rescue those of us that are in this world of tribulation and Lord, to... Uh, to pour His wrath and judgment out upon those who, uh, who hate His church. Father, we praise You and we thank You in the name of Jesus. Amen. I was telling Tiffany today when I was studying, as I was finishing everything up today, I was, it was, so, I was so excited, I was writing, and I had to slow down uh, so I could make my notes legible. And I told her, I said, you know, on Wednesday nights you feel kind of, it's kind of laid back a little bit, not as, sometimes not as intense. <laughs> Excuse me. That may not be the case tonight. I may get a little bit excited, and if I do, um, it's it's because of uh, of God's word and what uh, what we see here in regards to to Christ. Um, I, the, the title of the message tonight is "Christ is Worthy." Um, if you've ever read a novel, I, I read a lot of John Grissom books uh, when I was working offshore and had a lot of time in the evenings to, to read and. I read a lot of books, uh, tried to read some others, but to no avail. But if you've read any kind of novel, you've noticed at the beginning that the author will uh, introduce the characters in, in the story. And, and what he'll do is he'll tell you some things about, at the very least, the main characters. He will describe their character traits, and they tell you something about that particular individual. And character is one of the attributes or features that make up an individual. Um, when we talk about character and character traits, we talk about honesty, um, you know, people that are honest, sincere, uh, people who are liars, people who, who are not sincere, and things of that nature. Well, that's what John is going to do in this first chapter of Revelation. He paints a picture for us uh, of Jesus. And it's not meant to strike fear into us, but to reassure us of the victory over Satan that has already been won. That the war has already, the outcome has already been determined. We're just waiting for it to end. It's also meant to cause us to reverence and worship Him in spirit and in truth. 
Now, as we work through Revelation and we see we begin to see the seven vials and things of those unfold, understand that Revelation is about Jesus. It's about Christ. Revelation incorporates in this communication of who Christ is and and what He is going to do in regards to the unbelievers, it incorporates three types of literature. One, it's prophecy, and we saw that in verse 3. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy. Revelation is not solely future events, but it speaks of things that are to come. It is also what's called apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature is highly symbolic. It's highly, uh, it uses a lot of imagery, and it's to convey a message. Um, and so we see a lot of that. Um, for instance, in, in chapter 12, we see a beast, we see a woman, and things of that nature. Those those things represent something, and, and though as we work through Revelation, we will see that. But it's also in the form of a letter. We now see, uh, and you'll see in the outline, it has a greeting, and as we work through Revelation, it has a body, and then it will have a, a, a closing at the end. Revelation, though, as a prophetic book, warns us of things, tribulation, to come. We, as we see these things unfold, we will, we will understand that, it, that it's tribulation that comes upon the church. And what we will see at the end of that is, the, is God's judgment upon those who would wreak havoc upon the church. We can rest assured, though, that God will rain down this judgment upon the ungodly. And we need to understand about God's judgment. Though it's not always swift, it is certain. It will come to pass. Just like the second coming of Christ will come to pass, God's judgment upon the ungodly will come to pass. Revelation is a book of apocalyptic literature. And this form of literature, as I said, is highly symbolic. It uses a lot of imagery to convey a message. And what we need to understand when Revelation was written, in the time period that it was written, the, uh, the recipients of this letter would have known exactly what John was talking about. So if it meant something then, it had a meaning then, it's going to have the same meaning today. We may apply it to our life in a different manner. But the application of the Scripture is always tied to the original meaning of Scripture. We, we can't take out an application of the passage that has nothing to do with the original meaning. So our task is to find the original intent and meaning of this of this uh, of the scripture, so that we can rightly understand Revelation and apply it to us today. And understand that that Revelation is not an eschatological escapade. It's not just uh, something that that movies are made after. It's it's realities for us in this present even a, evil age as it was for those Christians in the early church. As much as Revelation is prophecy and apocalyptic literature, it is a letter to seven literal churches. These churches were in Western Asia, which is now Turkey. You can find it on the map, um, on a globe. Uh, It is modern-day Turkey. This letter is meant to warn, admonish, rebuke, and exhort churches to remain faithful in light of the world's hatred for God's people. And, And that's for us today, too, that we see more and more in our world the the uh, the world system, the world's culture, it hates the people of God. It hates the church of God. It hates the creator 
uh, God. And they, they do, they display, they evidence their hatred for God's church um, one way by, by uh, persecution, by tribulation. Though this letter does come with warnings, as we see in Revelation twenty-two eighteen, it comes with blessings as well there in, in Revelation 1, 3. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things. We, we talked about in the first couple of messages in Revelation that Revelation is meant to be understood. Um, it, Revelation, it's the unveiling, the revealing of Jesus Christ and His, his plan from His ascension until His return and, and His care over the church. Um, and so it's meant to be understood. It's not this, this mysterious book that cannot be understood. Um, it can be understood for, for, for all people. Now, we need to give ourselves to read, study, and obey this book. I would encourage you, as I did with Hebrews, um, and, and I think it takes about, depending on how fast or slow you read, 45 minutes to an hour, probably for an average reader, um, to sit down in one sitting and read through the book of Revelation. Now, let me tell you, it, it's kind of like drinking water from a fire hydrant. I mean, there is just a lot of stuff but it would probably help you understand the, the, where we're going with, with this um, as you read, if you were to sit down and read it. Now, we will find encouragement in a world that increasingly displays their hatred for their Creator as we understand revelations. I want to say that as God, as a jealous God, desires for His people to worship Him in spirit and in truth, and we can only do that through knowledge and understanding of God's Word, and that's what we're after as we study. Now, if you have a pen and paper, I did not print out a, a uh, outline for you tonight, but the outline is very, very simple. Um, if you have a pen and paper and you want to take notes, the, the text can actually be divided into two parts. First, in verse 4, there is the greeting. The greeting. The, the, I, the writer will identify himself. The recipients are addressed and then we have in this greeting a Trinitarian greeting. And then the second part of the text is praise to the one who is praiseworthy for who he is. That's in verse 5a, the first part of 5a, and then for what he's done. Um, that's the second part of verse 5 through verse 6 and then verse 8. And so tonight, um, I don't think we're going to get through this whole text, but we're going we're to mainly concentrate on the greeting. Now, the writer is obviously John, right? In verse 4, he says, John. Now, what you notice about this is he doesn't give a qualifier of who he is. He doesn't say John the Apostle, uh, John the Beloved, as he called himself in, John, uh, in the book of John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He just says it's John, and it's most likely because in that region where these churches were at, he would have been known. He was probably uh, seen as a church father to those seven churches. It's probably <clears throat> He was most likely uh, well-known already in, in this area. And secondly, we see who the recipients are. What does it say? The seven churches which are in Asia, which would be Western Asia or Turkey, as I said. Um, these are... Seven literal churches, as we would get to their letters in, in chapter 2 and chapter 3. Um, but Revelation, I want you to notice something. There are seven churches. But look at the end of verse 4. And from the seven spirits which are before His throne. Now, I said this is a Trinitarian greeting. 
we first have the Father. Notice verse 4, the middle of verse 4. From him which is, which was, and which is to come. Speaking of the eternality of God. Then we have the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits which are before His throne. I'll get into that in a moment. That's not seven different manifestations of a spirit or seven different spirits. Um, it, it speaks, uh, I'll give it a little bit more detail, but it speaks to fullness. And then beginning in verse 5, we get a picture of Jesus the Christ. We, we get a picture of the one who is praiseworthy. Um, let's just read through this. And Je- from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God, and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Do you see that we, we see the one who is praiseworthy because of what he, who he is, He's the faithful witness, and we'll get into that next week. Um, he's the first begotten of the dead. The, the Bible speaks to him as being the first fruits of the resurrection. Um, he's the prince of the kings of the earth, um, and he loved us for what he has done. We praise him for what he's done. He's loved us, washed us from our sins in, a, in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests. See what he's done for us. This is a work that has been done through Christ. Now, Revelation, as we see, we see this number seven, right? We see numbers throughout the Scripture. Um, Revelation is organized in sevens, and the biblical number for fulfillness or completeness. It gets its origin in Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, where God created the earth and all the things there in six days, and on the seventh day, He done what? He rested. Why? Because the work was finished, right? It was complete. It was full. So he rested. So we get this number seven for completeness or fullness. It also speaks to the time necessary for something to be done effectively. It's, we see the significance here of numerical symbolism. Now, let me say this again about apocalyptic literature. Is it, is it is highly symbolic. Um, everything is not a literal one-for-one interpretation. So... When we see the number seven, it it signifies something. It doesn't always mean literal. However, there are times when it is a literal number. Um, Most commentators would agree that uh, there are at least four numbers, three, four, seven, and twelve, and their multiples have symbolic meanings in Revelation. They have also generally agreed that these numbers receive their figurative significance from the Old Testament. And we'll see that here in a moment. Though, of course, literal interpreters of Revelation contend for a consistent literal approach to understanding the numbers as they do the pictures in the book. Now, if you'll remember, way back when we started studying um, eschatology, I, I used this term, told, told you about this term called gematria. Gematria is... Uh, basically means whatever you have to do to make something fit your view, then that's what you do. So if you have to interpret things through numbers to make it fit a view that you want it to fit, then that's what you do, rather than letting the Bible speak, letting the Bible say what it means. Now, 
the probability is that the numbers are to be comprehended symbolically for the same reason that the pictorial images of the book are so to be viewed. Now, again, it's highly symbolic stuff. If you think about, um, what is it, the locusts that have the face of a man and the hair of a woman, um, Hal Lindsey in his book back in the late 70s, early 80s, The Late Great Planet Earth, talked about that meaning black helicopters. Well, how can it mean black helicopters if they didn't know what helicopters were back in those days? You see, the meaning that the app, our application has to go back to the original meaning, and our meaning today cannot change from the original intent. So we, we have to see these things as, as symbolic. So we get an idea of this symbolic notion in this number of completeness. And there's some, um, matter of fact, turn to Leviticus chapter 8. Uh, and what this is is an example of the uh, Old Testament example of the number seven as figurative include passages in which priestly figures sprinkle the altar seven times with sacrificial blood. Look at Leviticus chapter 8 verse 11. Now, this, this sprinkling of the blood is not a figurative thing that's taking place. It is something that is actually taking place. But we see how the number is used symbolically as well as, um, as, as literally. Leviticus 8, let's see. Y'all all there? I'm not. All right, verse 11. And he sprinkled thereof upon the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all his vessels, both the laver and his foot, to sanctify them. Now, that was something that God told him to do. It was instruction that God was given, um, and it was something that was literally done. And we see this in other places as well in the Old Testament. Now, back to the Numbers 3, 4, 7, and 12. Um, to show you how they apply in, in a symbolic manner, um, these are numbers that represent fullness or completeness. Now, turn to... Uh, Revelation 13. Yeah, that's not the right one. No, I'm sorry. Revelation 7. Revelation chapter 7. <clears throat> now, this section here has been taught that there will be 144,000 witnesses going to Israel or 144,000 Israelites being saved. But I want to read through this and I want to show you something. Verse 1, it says, After these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. Now, were these things literally happening? No, they weren't. They were symbolic, and we'll get into that when we get to this chapter. Verse 2, he says, And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. That's a key phrase there. Sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Verse 4, And I heard the number of them which were sealed. 
And there were sealed an hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. And it goes and lists twelve thousand from each tribe. Now, after this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindred and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. Now, if you take the number 12, we're talking about fullness, we're talking about completeness. If you take the number 12 and you multiply it times 12,000, what do you end up with? 144,000, right? Who is this? What is this pointing to? If you'll notice, though, before this numbering of these people, they were sealed, verse 3, the servants of our God in their foreheads. Now, the forehead implies union or fellowship. It's not a literal stamping on the forehead. It's not God walking up to people and stamping saved, redeemed, or mine on their forehead. Now, what is he doing? How is he sealing these people? What is he? It, it speaks to uh, th- this forehead speaks to implies union or fellowship. So what's God doing? Well, in John one or First John one, let's go there for a second. First John one talks about fellowship. This is a, an, an amazingly enough. This is the first mark that John mentions in his epistle. Look what he says. Verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. He's talking about fellowship. He's talking about partnership. He's talking about unity. He's talking about um, communion. Well, who are, going back to Revelation chapter 7, who are these 144,000 and what do they represent? Well, if you go to Galatians chapter 6, verse 16, he talks about the Israel of God and that they are believing Jews and believing Gentiles. Let me read that for you. Galatians chapter 6, verse 16, he says, And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them, and mercy, and upon who? The Israel of God. Well, Paul's writing to Gentiles, and he's calling them the Israel of God. So what this 144,000 represent is the fullness of the kingdom of God. It's all those who have been redeemed by the Lamb. It's those who were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the earth. It's the fullness of the kingdom of God. We see this in John chapter 6, if you want to turn there. Beginning in verse 36. We'll back up to verse 35. He says, And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Now let me ask you a question. We're talking about symbolism 
and, and things that are literal. Since coming to faith in Christ, has there ever been a time that you've become hungry? I've been hungry before, physically speaking. But spiritually, what he's speaking of is spiritually here. That you will never hunger, you will never thirst. Um, speaking of something that is, takes place spiritually, not physically. Because we know that if we go without eating for a while, we're going to get hungry. And we're probably going to get pretty angry the, the hungrier that we get. Verse 36, For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. I think it's in this same chapter later on where Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. Well, is that literal things that he's talking about? No, he's talking about partaking of the word of God. Verse 37, well, he said, verse 36, But I said unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. He's talking to the, uh, to the Pharisees here, I believe. Notice verse 37, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again on the last day. You want to talk about a verse that screams of our eternal security in Christ, it's this verse right here. That all that the Father has given to me, they will come, and I will not lose any. See, our salvation rests in Christ. Our salvation does not rest in our work. Our salvation does not rest in what we do. It, excuse me, rests in the finished work of Christ. So we have hope. Verse 39 I'm sorry, verse 38. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. We read verse 39. This is the Father's will which hath sent me of all which he hath given me. I should lose nothing. Now, who has he given to Jesus? This, going back to this fullness, those written in the Lamb's book of life, this fullness of the kingdom, these 144,000, it's speaking of spiritual Israel. It's not speaking of physical national Israel. It's speaking of the kingdom of God that Jesus bought and paid for with his life. Look at verse 40. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son... Now that word seeth is key. We're going to get to that in a moment. And believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. To seal someone or something is to set a mark as a token of its authenticity or approvedness. What mark has God set upon His people as having been approved by Him? The Spirit of God. God's given us His Spirit. He is, and it speaks to... Look at 2 Corinthians one twenty two. 2 Corinthians 1.22 speaks to this. For the Jews require... Uh, I'm sorry. Second, yeah, 2 Corinthians, not 1 Corinthians. I'm in the wrong book. Here we go. Verse 22. Who hath also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. How has God set His mark upon those who profess the name of Christ? He's given you of His Spirit. I talk about one-third of the Trinity being within you. That's the mark that God has set upon you. 
God sets a mark upon us by giving them the Holy Spirit as evidence by a life that is lived by a life of obedience and godliness. So the, the mark that we have the Holy Spirit is, is evidence to the, the, the other Christians and to the outside world as living in obedience to God, as living a life of godliness. Matter of fact, Ephesians 1.13 says this as well. Now, how does this take place? How does this, him giving this mark take place? Well, Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3.3, you must be born again. Now, born again literally means to be born from above. But he says, um, you must be born again to, to see the kingdom of God. The see or seeth is to comprehend, to understand. Now, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 2.14, that the natural man can't understand the things of God. It can't understand the things of the Spirit because they are spiritually discerned. So what God has done by setting His seal upon people is giving them His Spirit that we would profess His name and that we would live in obedience. Now you see, I, you see the number seven there in Revelation chapter one that He's talking about. We see two things going on here. We see the literal churches, it's used in a literal sense of there's seven real churches that we'll, we'll go through their letters as well, but there's also that, that, uh, that symbolic sense of the seven spirits that speaks to the fullness of the Spirit. Now let me close with this. The choice of seven churches expresses this theme of sevens and hence at the wider relevance of the message to all churches in all times. The seven churches addressed in chapters 2 and 3 are not church periods. They're not church ages, nor do they even represent church ages. They are seven, seven literal churches. And I really believe that if you look at those seven literal churches, and when we get to that point, you will notice that those seven literal churches really they represent churches that we see even now. You think about the church at Sardis. It says that you've got a, a name or reputation that you're alive. But in reality, you're dead. In other words, you're given this facade. You're given this picture. You're painting this picture for people that there's life in this church. But in reality, there's death. Well, when I think of the church at Sardis, I, I think of a church that has a lot of activity. There's a lot of activity physically speaking. But when you go to that church, there's no spiritual life in it whatsoever. You, you don't sense the Spirit of God at work in that church. And so what you end up with is, is what I mentioned a little while ago, a carnival. You, you end up with a carnival where there's all this fun and games and, and hoorah and all this and that, but the Spirit of God is nowhere near that place. If God... Folks, has taken this much care and gives such detail to reveal His plan, should we not be encouraged to obey Him? You think of what took place. As we read through these letters and as we go through the book of Revelation, we will see great tribulation that took place. If God has taken that much care to reveal to us Jesus Christ at work in His church through the whole church age from then until now, 
that He has cared for His church in tribulation. He will care for His church in tribulation. And no matter what is going on, He will care for us. If He has taken that much care to reveal that to us, should we not be discouraged by what we see or encouraged even in light of what we see today? Look, I'll look around in general at things that are taking place. As I mentioned to the deacons, things going on in our convention. And I get discouraged if I look at that too much. But you know what? I'm also encouraged. Because I know that the falling away, the apostasy, is a sign of Jesus' return. So my hope is not in the Southern Baptist Convention. My hope is in Jesus will return to take us to Himself. Folks, we know the outcome. Jesus, ultimately, Jesus wins in the end, right? He conquers the world and He exacts judgment upon the unbelievers. So why should we not be encouraged and follow Him in obedience? Let's pray.